0: glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devon Neal. Jude verse 11. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you. "...feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees, whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints." to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lust and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of Advantage. We'll stop reading there. Thank you. you may be seated. Dawson, ask you a favor. Would you bring me a bottle of water? This water doesn't taste something. It's not quite right. There's a bottle in the fridge. If you don't mind, thank you. So let me just give us a little bit of review from what we've looked at over the last few weeks, last couple of weeks. Uh, we begin in verse 11. Of course, we went through each one of these men: uh, Cain and Balaam and Kor, or Cora. And, and you can see their characteristics. And I believe having studied them, some of the things said tonight will we'll be brought to light by being reminded of the kind of characters we were dealing with in Cain and Balaam and Korah. We gave some current illustrations of men like this that are operating now uh, and dealt with in verse 11, though, as we came back into verse 11, the course of these men, their selected path, they've gone in the way of Cain, their sensual pursuit, they've run greedily after the error of Balaam, and then their sudden perish. They have perished in the gainsaying of Korah. And we know he, he perished suddenly. He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. Number two, last, uh, last week we went over their character as described in verses 12 and 13. Thank you, sir. And The Lord uses a number of things to, to describe their character. We said these men were unclean. They're referred to as spots They're blemishes on a local church. Men like this are a blemish on the people of God in the local church. They're spots because they're unclean. They're filthy. They're unconcerned. They feast with God's people without fear. They commingle in fellowship as though they are true believers when in their heart they are not. They're unstable. They're represented by clouds without rain that are blown about of the winds, trees that are blown over by the winds, and waves that are blown up by the winds, if you would. So they're unclean. They're unconcerned. They're unstable. They're unrooted. By that we know because they are uprooted. Uh, they are plucked up by the roots. They are unfruitful, trees without fruit, twice dead. They're uncontrollable, raging waves of the sea, and they're undone. They're like falling or wandering stars. They vanish off into the darkness forever, and that's how they are described. God uses a number of things in nature to help describe them. He used Old Testament characters to describe them. Now he point you to the heavens and says, let me describe you this way, or to a a withered up, uprooted tree, or uh, to a cloud that blows over and produces no rain. We said about those things, all of those things are controlled by the wind. And winds in Ephesians chapter 4 are are doctrines. They're blown about by every wind of doctrine. God's people should not be so. One of the the roles of a pastor and teacher, uh, one of the roles of getting evangelists and preaching the gospel is to get us well-established in what is true. One of the most popular things to do today is to declare, and it's nothing new under, there's nothing new under the sun, is to declare, I have discovered a revolutionary truth for you as Christians. And let me share that with you. You may be in a church that's, that's, um, orthodox. You may be in a church that's stuck in tradition. You may be in a church, and by the way, we don't want to be stuck in man-made tradition, but there are certain traditions that come from God. Amen? There are certain, Paul talked about traditions. He wasn't talking about man-made traditions. He's talking about things we do that become traditions for us because they're biblical. Preaching the Bible is a biblical tradition. Speaking to ourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and making melody in our hearts to the Lord, that's a biblical tradition. Giving for the needs of fellow saints is a biblical tradition. Taking the Lord's table together according to God's word is a biblical tradition. There are traditions that are to be kept according to God's word. They should be a tradition. They should be repeated. They should be passed down through the ages. And so there's going to be people today that are always offering something that will revolutionize your Christian life. And I'm tell you they appeal to. They appeal to the unstable soul, the person that's unsettled in their Christian conviction. They're unsettled in their salvation. Maybe they're not sure they're saved. Maybe God has been dealing with them about submission of their will and they're battling that and along comes some cheap-talking, big-talking preacher that says, if you're hearing that, you're in a church that doesn't understand grace. Listen to my message and you'll be liberated to live how you want and have a good conscience. You realize you and I cannot have a clean conscience by living how we want. We can only have a clean conscience by living the way he wants. It's the only thing that the Spirit of God as His children will confirm in our conscience, now that's the right way, walk in it. When we try to pursue our lust and pursue the will of God at the same time, it causes confusion and distress. And yet, remember, these men turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. The very thing the grace of God is not to produce and cannot produce, they turn the grace of God. They say, God's favor toward you is demonstrated by allowing you to live your life the way you want to. Now, I'm going to tell you, there are preachers a dime a dozen today preaching this, and they're telling you that it's a revolutionizing truth. Oh, it'll revolutionize you, all right. It'll take you right back in the slop of sin you came out with. You go in there with them, because remember what they go back to? Their hogs will go back to their wallowing, and dogs will return to their vomit, and they want to take you with them to share in their feast. <laughs> and this is why Jude is warning. These men are dangerous. These men are headed for destruction. And so, we've seen their, um, we've seen their, their course, their character. This week we begin by looking at their condemnation. Repeatedly through Jude's book, uh, it refers to the fact these are condemned men. And studying the Bible, I do not believe it is possible, I I don't see in Scripture, and that's why I don't believe it, that it's possible for an apostate to be saved. They have come to the knowledge of the truth, they have rejected the knowledge of the truth, and it would seem that these are men that have gone beyond a point of, of willingness to be saved and they are men who have committed themselves to destruction. I never find anywhere the Bible alluding to these being men who are salvageable. They are men who could have gotten saved. They've tasted the good things of God. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 6 and have full well rejected that. And so, what we find in the apostate is that he has given himself over to sin and Satan to be destroyed, if you would. Uh, and we find references. And you say, when does a man get to that point? I don't believe we should go there. I, I, I think it's a dangerous thing to say that man is one of those who can't. Then you're trying to take a tear and pull it out from among the weak. Yet we can identify apostates. And if you know for sure you've gotten one, the fact is we find nothing in Scripture that says uh, that once they have gotten to this point of apostatizing. Because an apostate is not someone who is simply uh, the sinner who is needing, in need of reconciliation to God. He is someone who the Holy Spirit has fully convinced that he needs a Savior, he knows it's true, he knows that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, and he has preferred his sin over a Savior with definite purpose. It's not someone who's ignorant. It's someone who knows the truth, could tell you how to be saved as easily as you could tell somebody else how to be saved. Someone who's very familiar with truth, but has intentionally and willfully and purposely and most likely repeatedly rejected it. And there's more study can be done on apostates, Second Peter and some of these places, but the fact of the matter is what we find over and over, these are men that are condemned. They are marked by condemnation because they've chosen to reject Jesus Christ. Verse 16, let's, um, let's look at a few things here. Excuse me, go back to verse 4 if you would. It says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, if you were a Calvinist, you'd love this verse and love to run with it and say, See, God foreordained these men to condemnation. They have no choice. That's not what the Bible says there. How many of you believe something like this? God in his foreknowledge and wisdom made a way of salvation and also made a plan as to what to do with those who would submit to his will and those who would reject his will. God in his foreknowledge gave man a will. We understand that. And he also foreordained what would happen to those who rejected his will concerning salvation. Condemnation. The Bible says, John 3, uh, 336, that if we, if we believe not on the Son, the wrath of God abideth on us. So God chose only one way of salvation. God foreordained only one way of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. And he foreordained that those who do not believe in Jesus Christ will be condemned. So these men were foreordained to this condemnation. Why? Because God chose for them. So meaning, we're gonna, <laughs> this, if you go with Calvinism, by the way, this is what you're going to have to do that God wanted these people to perish and He chose them to perish. So even if they wanted to get saved, the divine sovereign decree says they cannot, so they're just stuck. That is a devilish doctrine. I'm just going to say that. It's a devilish doctrine because it takes Bible, twists it, and brings you to a false conclusion. Yes, God did foreordain these men to condemnation because He foreordained anybody that rejects Jesus Christ to condemnation. The Bible says, He that believeth not is condemned when already and so then the bible doctrine on this couldn't be clearer so let us be clear the bible says these were men ordained to this condemnation ungodly men turning the grace of god into lostiveness and i'll just say this one other thing about the foreknowledge of god you be careful because we don't have foreknowledge so be very careful talking about the foreknowledge of god we don't understand it very well and i don't think we will until we're in glory but the fact of the matter is did God foresee and foreknow that there would be men who would believe the devil over him? He forechose what would happen to those men. They would have to share in the condemnation of the devil uh, with him. And so then, their condemnation is, is determined by God. It's not, you, it, there are universalists who would say, well, God will give everybody another chance. No, these men have already, the Bible says, they are ordained as rejectors of Jesus Christ. They are ordained to this condemnation. The person who rejects the gospel is ordained to condemnation. It's not as though they're going to die and get another chance. Purgatory is a false doctrine that that flies in the face of God's ordaining rejectors of Jesus Christ to condemnation. If you step into eternity without Jesus Christ, condemnation has already been ordained. The only way to be spared the condemnation is, is to repent toward God, put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, their, their condemnation is determined by God. As rejectors of Jesus Christ, it's God who's determined that they will, uh, they will perish. So they were before of old ordained to this condemnation uh, because they are ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. That denying means they don't deny his existence, they contradict him. We spoke of that and we dealt with verse 4. They contradict God. They contradict Him concerning Christ. They contradict Him concerning righteousness. They contradict Him concerning faith and repentance. And They are constantly contradicting God and therefore they're they're condemned. So their condemnation is determined. Number 2 in verse 13, it's described. The Bible says, Raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved... The blackness of darkness forever. The blackness of darkness forever. There's a lot can be said about darkness like this. We're not talking about darkness like you flip off the lights and you can still kind of see your wall or see your hand in front of your face. No, this blackness and darkness is like when a a shooting star disappears into the black, black darkness, and you can't see anything beyond that. In darkness, there's fear. In darkness, there is no, no clarity as to where you are, or where you're going, or where you've been. It is a place of eternal darkness. It's the lake of fire described in, in Revelation 21 verse 8, a place of torment, a place uh, of eternal loss, a place where in the blackness of darkness, you'll never be seen, or, I'm, or known by those who are living again. You're gone, cast away forever. And so then the description of their of their condemnation is in verse 13. And there are so many other scriptures, but this is one way of, of describing the eternal condemnation prepared for those who reject Jesus Christ. It is a place where forever you are banished from God and all those who have eternal life and uh, forever cast away, including there, is the eternal flame. It's not just dark, it's also an eternal flame, which we read about in Second Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 2, Revelation 20, the lake of fire is described in 21. So anyway, their 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 condemnation is, is determined by God, described there in verse 13, declared again, verses 11, 14, and 15, meaning by declared, I mean it was prophesied, uh, Jude brings up Enoch, uh, the, the, that man who walked with God and was raptured out, if you would. This is prophecy here. Not only did Enoch prophesy, but Jude is referring back to Enoch. We learn what God's going to do in the future by looking at what he's done in the past. Verse 14, And Enoch also the seventh from Adam, and so seven generations out from Adam, God's ready to send judgment Seven is the number of completion, number of perfection. God created the world in seven days. Six days rest of the seventh. Even so, seven generations from Adam. And man had perfectly prepared himself for the judgment of God. Uh, there are those, and we won't go this far because you have to make the Bible say things it doesn't, would suggests, well, when the world is about 7,000 years old, then God's going to bring judgment again. I don't know if that's true or not. What I would say is this, is seventh from Adam prophesied Enoch of these saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of saints. No doubt Enoch uh, being referred to in the past is reference to something in the future. As these apostates are on earth, it's signaling the time of judgment is near. And so just as Enoch prophesied of these right before the flood, Jude is now preaching about these just before the Lord's return. And for us, it's even nearer than it was then. So as Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these saying... Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What do you think Jude is saying God's going to judge these men for? (laughs) Being ungodly. We've just dealt with godliness in Sunday school. Well, the opposite of the godly are the ungodly. Those who refute God, they they deny His way. They rebel against His will. They they deny His word. They are ungodly through and through. And what Enoch prophesied, he lived in an ungodly age just before the flood. Right before the flood. If you study the time frame of Enoch's departure, he was taken just before the flood came. Uh, Right before that, I I believe it was Lamech, there was Noah's father, I believe have lived 777 years, and when he died, the flood came. Enoch had prophesied, the Lord's coming with judgment, and he was not only prophesying of Noah's flood, he's prophesying of another day, when ungodliness will be being preached, by men who claim to know God, but have rejected Jesus Christ, men who creep in among us, they don't, I think the great misconception that I believe the book of Jude is greatly trying to deal with, as well as Second Peter, is these are not secular men. These are religious men. If we're not careful, we think of the secular world as the God-deniers and the religious world as the God-believers. But there's more unbelief in the religious world than there is in the secular world many times. Now, I didn't say the righteous world. I said the religious world. And so these men are not secular. They are not ignorant of God. They don't even deny his existence. They pervert his word and falsely teach his grace in order to to defend and promote ungodliness. It's very important for us then to have a clear definition of what godliness is. Godliness is to be like God, not as a God in power and might and strength, but to conform to his character, to conform to Christ. And so then, when you have a firm, clear, biblical definition of godliness, then you have a good definition of ungodliness. Uh, That which is in defiance of God's will is ungodly, and these men promote that. Enoch prophesied their judgment's coming. So we're saying their condemnation was determined before of old, before a long time back. God already determined what was going to be done with men like this. It's described as uh, blackness of darkness forever. It is declared by by Enoch as a prophecy, and then here by Jude, it's declared prophetically, meaning they're just like Korah's judgment came, the judgment of these men is coming. What did God say then to do when he's about to open the earth and swallow up Korah? What were the instructions to the people of Israel concerning how to relate to Korah and his men? You might know. God gave a very specific instruction. He warned their judgment is coming. Come out away from them. Same thing we're told in 2 Corinthians 6. Come out from among them and be ye separate. I'm going to tell you some all kinds of vile things are promoted and, and instructed in the name of love in our day. When anybody stands and says, you know, I cannot have part in that ministry. So that's a very interesting question today via the internet as a poll, kind of a survey. And that is if a, if a cult or false religion like say the LDS religion offers favors To those of us who are Bible-believing, blood-washed Christians, such as the LDS church will supply money to put a roof on your building as a good deed. Should we take it? My answer is no. No way. Why not? Well, because they're apostate. I mean, their doctrine is. They are a cult. They are idolatrous. So we don't want anywhere near that. We don't want to touch that. We want to stay away from that. It's unclean. Why? Because judgment's coming on those folks, and for those who are entangled in it, they need to see a distinction. They need to know their rock is not our rock. Their Savior is not our Savior. If we start doing that, what we're doing is affirming their belief system in the minds of those who are caught up in it. And I say all that to say this. We need to have a, a clear understanding. There are some people who claim to love God who actually don't. Now, we don't need to go around as police officers trying to figure out who all law is. We have the Bible to define it and show us the kind of men these are. You have men today who claim to be servants of God and are actively living in immoral lifestyles. You can say something is wrong there. I heard recently of supposedly, there's so many perverse things about this, and just you don't know where to begin. Uh, and I may have already mentioned this in a previous message, but it was a church, one of these mega churches, And they were showing such grace and love toward their pastor because she had gotten caught up in an immoral affair and was unexpectedly expecting a baby. And the church wanted to be affirming of their love to her, so they did not ask her to resign. No, they ministered to her in her time of need, understanding that those were her choices. Now, that's radical. I understand that's extreme. But you have something that's calling itself a church, defying the Word of God about women preaching in church and being pastors, Defying the word of God about the vile nature of fornication, that fornicators do not in- inherit the kingdom of God, and calling themselves loving and gracious and boasting on social media about their love for their pastor. That's not love. That's devilish. That is ungodly. And that crowd is facing the judgment of God because they're saying God is wrong. Fornication is okay. Don't, you don't need to be a police of somebody's morals. We're not. God is. The Bible says, be not deceived. Uh, Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. And so then, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. And so I use that as an illustration. It's very extreme. I understand that. But may I say this, there are independent Baptist churches that are dabbling with that kind of mentality. By The Corinthians did it. They, They patted themselves on their back for their love for their brother who was living in gross immorality. And Paul said, your glorying is not good. You're puffed up over this sin and you're glorying in how kind and how, how tolerant and acceptance you are, but that's not love. And so in, in this age, church, we've got to get a hold of this. That these are men who creep in and they are not just, they're not just in trouble in this life. These are, these are unregenerate people who are promoting immorality in the name of grace. Bible says in Ephesians 5, let no man deceive you by any means. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. And he listed things such as uncleanness and covetousness and idolatry and fornication and adultery in Ephesians chapter 5. And so then their condemnation is declared by Enoch of old and by Jude here that it is it is a pending judgment that's just around the corner. Just like when Enoch prophesied, that judgment was, was soon on its way, even so it is today. And then there, of course, their judgment is definite. It's irreversible because it's declared by the word of God. Those who have chosen to reject Jesus Christ, if we reject the blood of Jesus Christ, if we trample under feet our feet, the Son of God, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. God's not going to give another son to die in our place. He's not going to offer another way of salvation. When one rejects Jesus Christ as the way of salvation, there's no other way of salvation. So, their, their courses describe their character described, their condemnation determined by God, described, declared by, by the prophet Enoch and uh, the, the preacher Jude and definite because it is uh, God that is carrying it out. Verse 16, he gives one more verse to, uh, to help us, I think, define these men once and for all. He's going to speak of their conduct. This is the fruit of their lives. He says, these are murmurers, complainers. We begin in looking at their conduct, at their words. There's three types of words described here. He says murmurs, complainers, and if you move down, he says, their mouth speaketh great swelling words, and then we'll talk about the rest of that verse in a minute. So they murmur, they complain, and they speak great swelling words. I had to look that up, like what does he mean by great swelling words? The word swelling, according to Webster's Dictionary, means growing, or enlarging in its dimensions, growing tumid, inflating, growing tumid, uh, growing or making louder. The second definition means this. A rising or enlargement by passion as the swellings of anger, grief, or pride. So their pride makes them use great words. They're big talkers. Let's we say, boy, is a big talker. Paul would talk about in the Corinthian church, there were many that were puffed up. They were puffed up. They were inflated with self-image. They were very impressed with themselves. And how many of you know that pride in the heart affects the use of the tongue? Oh, my. Yes. Well, well, we can talk a big talk. Let me put it to you this way. Let's say um, we're going to work on a car. I'm not a very good mechanic. But let's say I want you to think I am. And let's say I've convinced myself that I know quite a bit. Let's say you are a certified mechanic. You know exactly what you're talking about. How many of you know this is true? The certified mechanic that knows what he's doing often talks far less than the guy that wants everybody to think he knows what he's doing. Absolutely. You know how a certified mechanic proves he knows how to work on a car? He works on the car. And his work speaks for him. Do you know how somebody that doesn't know how to work on a car gets people convinced that they know how to work on a car? They have to use great swelling words. They use every automob- automotive term they know to use and, and they will be eloquent and they will give you great discourses on everything they do know to cover up all that they don't know. You with me? This, sadly, we've probably all been guilty of this in some portion of life. So they, they oh boy, I tell you. Ah, uh, you know, and I was looking down there at the, and they start naming all these parts on the drive shaft because that's the only thing they've ever worked on. And boy, they go into the great details in that drive shaft and everybody around is like, wow, this guy really knows a lot about cars. No, he knows about U-joints and drive shafts. He knows nothing else, but he is going to use great swelling words because he's inflated with pride. He wants you to think more highly of him than he truly is. May I say this? The Bible says these men as natu- as brute beasts... They they intrude into things they know naturally, meaning they don't really know God. They've never experienced the new birth. So what they do know about God, they expound upon with great swelling words, puffed up with their pride. And Paul would say back in Corinthians that he was not concerned so much uh, uh, with, the, with, with the words, but with the power of people who are using puffed up words, if you will. Let me read you a few verses on being puffed up, if we might, in 1 Corinthians as he speaks of great swelling words. We'll come back and touch on murmuring and complaining. I think those are pretty self-explanatory. But 1 Corinthians chapter 4, there are men who get a portion or two of Scripture and, boy, they just they work that thing over and they expound and expound and make you say things it doesn't. And many times these men who use great swelling words about the things of God, the best thing for them to do is go live a godly life and then when they speak it will have some meaning to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, but they can't live a godly life because they're ungodly. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6. I'm just going to read a number of verses on, on being puffed up because when we're puffed up, then we have great swelling words. Let me just say this. Just because someone's puffed up and may use great swelling words doesn't mean they're an apostate. What it's saying is this is a characteristic of an apostate. Apostates will do this because they're puffed up with pride, puffed up with anger, their words will reflect that. It'll be their words larger and greater than the substance of themselves. First uh, Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. And then First Corinthians four eighteen and 19 says, Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. But I will come to you shortly if the Lord will and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. In essence, what he's saying is, I don't really care about these guys that are talking so big about what a great Christian they are. I want to know the substance. Are they what they claim to be? I want to know, do they practice what they preach? May I say this? I said a few weeks ago, one of the dangers of getting sucked into men who have ministries that make them untouchable to you is you can't tell if they're what they claim to be or if they're just puffed up. Anybody can memorize somebody else's sermon and get on the air and say that it's theirs or can say things about the Bible. I believe, and this is, I'll be very careful. I try not to use that term, I believe, or my opinion. But I believe if you look at men who love to delve into and talk much about the original languages, many times this is one of the reasons. I'm not against referencing the original languages. Don't misunderstand me. But if you, if I could stand here half the night giving you Greek words and pronouncing them perfectly and telling you what they mean, you may come out thinking, wow, what a theologian. And get absolutely nothing out of what was said. Just convinced that man must know God. And much of the tactics used today by false teachers is to make it sound with great swelling words like they are in deep walk with God when they don't even know God. They're just dealing with things they know naturally and not things they know spiritually. And so great swelling words, we deal with that first. There's other verses that talk about being puffed up. 1 Corinthians five two talks about the church at Corinth being puffed up over the man living in sin. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 says, Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Knowledge gives a lot of hot air. Charity gives a lot of substance to your Christian life or to those you minister to. And so then, and so on, and so forth. First Corinthians thirteen four uses the term again. Colossians two eighteen. These men obviously are puffed up because that's the idea of the great swelling words, inflated words, which make them sound greater, make them sound more spiritual than they truly and genuinely are. And so these are men who use great swelling words. The Bible says they're murmurers and complainers. Uh, a murmurer is someone. The idea of that word murmur means to mutter like someone muttering something under their breath. Um, oh, boy, can you believe? I've I've seen people in church at times, again, this doesn't necessarily mean someone's an apostate, but a, a hymn gets sung. They go, and they start murmuring about how they can't bear that hymn. Uh, a message gets preached, or a couple of Christians are rejoicing over a, a great doctrine, and they come in and, Oh, bother, I can't believe you believe that foul doctrine. I bet you believe once saved, always saved. You know what I'm talking about? Murmurs, muttering under their breath, always complaining about something that's taught or preached or a policy. There are some people today, the only thing they preach against is the local church. They don't preach against sin. They don't. I mean, they, they do. They preach against the sin of being tied to a church. They, the only thing they can preach against is being a committed Christian. They preach against faithful church attendance, preach against reading your Bible regularly, preach against soul winning. You know what? How about preach for something? How about preach for something that will help you serve the Lord? I think of a man today, he claims to be an independent Baptist. He is in the state of Arizona. Some of you know who I'm talking about. Might as well even say his name. Mr. Stephen Anderson down there. And all I ever hear from that ministry is murmuring and complaining. Murmuring about that horrible brother that doesn't know what he's talking about and that horrible missionary that doesn't know what he's talking about and those people that claim to be soul winners but are not. They're not like us. Great swelling words. I'd like to know the substance. It's rare I name somebody's name but his needs to be named. At the very least, he's a heretic. And he's a... So called Baptist. And again, I don't always name names, but that's one that needs to be because there is a public ministry putting out of YouTube videos and mailing DVDs in the mail and stealing people's church members and dividing churches and homes and families using puffed up, murmuring, complaining language. That's one example of many. And we need to be able to identify that and say, I don't have anything to do with that. I want to serve the Lord. These are murmurers and complainers. We could accuse Jude of doing the same. You know what he's doing? He is identifying, saying these are the characteristics of people like this. And again, we find at times the Apostle Paul warning Timothy of Demetrius, I believe it is, the silversmith, John warning the church, and I was saying that Diotrephes was an apostate, but warned him by name. You have among you a man named Diotrephes who loveth always to have the preeminence. Why? to attack people or to protect others. That is to protect. There are those need to be protected. The Lord Jesus warned his disciples of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and of the Herodians and referred to Herod as Herod that fox. <laughs> Why? To protect people. And so then murmurs, complainers using great swelling words. That's their words. And then verse 16 goes on to tell us about their walk. It says these are murmurs, complainers walking after their own Lust. What is the driving factor of their life? Their passion. Their lust. And lust, really, I can only find it very rarely ever used in the Bible in a positive in a positive instance. The only time I think is in the Old Testament, it says you can go purchase whatsoever thy soul lusteth after. And in that instance, it seems to be referring to whatever you yearn for, desire. But here their lust is their yearning for self gratification. That that lust of they are driven by what they want for themselves. Now, not the a person in this room doesn't have to deal with lust. But apostates, you know how they deal with it? They pursue it. They don't ever, they don't ever repent of it. They don't ever see it as a bad thing. Everything in their life is about getting what they want. They are, you know what? That's why the word wolf is never used here, but that describes a wolf. Do you know what determines where a wolf lives? It's appetite. It's appetite. Wolves follow the herds. (laughs) They follow the flocks. Their appetite is the driving factor that motivates everything they do. These men are men that walk after their own lust, meaning they see an opportunity in that church. Ooh, that's an opportunity for me to have something I want. Maybe it's, We think of lust, we immediately think of sensual immorality. That can be one of the lusts, certainly. But how about lust for money? How about lust for position, for prominence, for power, for a name? I mean, these men, it could be a lust for a host of things, but the point is that is what determines what they do. They're not walking according to the Word of God. They're not walking according to the Spirit of God. They are walking according to their lust. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth Death. The Christian is never to walk after their lust. When we do, and the Lord shows us, we're to repent of it. And understand, that's not the will of God for our lives. We're not to be led of our lust. This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But these are men who are walking after their lust. May I say this? Many of the doctrines being formulated today will be presented to you as something that some great Christian discovered in his or her great walk with God. That, That they have found something that you probably have not, When in fact, what caused them to find it is it was a doctrine that excused them pursuing their lust. I've already decided what I want to do, and I'm going to use the Bible to vindicate my deeds. And it'll pitch it as, I have found something that will revolutionize your spiritual life, and so on and so forth. And eh, their walk is after their own lust. And finally, their wonder. The Bible says these are murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lust, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words. And this says this, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. I puzzled with this a little bit, like, how do I process this? And I think I had my brain in a little bit backwards. I read a couple of other men that helped me a great deal. The idea would be this. The Bible says we're to do all things without respect of persons. But Paul told Timothy to do things without partiality, meaning... Um, I don't see a guy walk in the door and go, ooh, how to make a good church member. I saw what he's driving. How can we recruit this guy and get him to join us? I mean, look, he is an important individual in our community. I mean, he is a who's who in our town. Maybe if we could get him to come here, he could put a good word in for us over here. Maybe if we could win that guy, now he. hopefully he's saved, but... Man, if he would come here, wow what it would do for this ministry, if he could be part of it. The apostate, is he gravitates toward men and admires men who are to his advantage. He has men's persons in admiration. Why? Because he thinks they give him some kind of an advantage. If I could rub shoulders with so-and-so, that would... You know, we know that goes on in the business world, right? We know that goes on in the business world, and we expect it from the lost... But for men who claim to know God, men who claim to be serving the Lord are not supposed to admire men because of personal advantage. We are supposed to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and obey Him and serve others, not look for people who can be an advantage or do favors for us. And this mentality, I, when I've studied this aspect of this message today, it grieved me because I thought, wow, how many churches, and I'll just focus on Baptist churches, have become extremely political. You know what political is? We like that guy better than that guy because he gives us a greater advantage than that one. James warned of this. He said, some guy comes in with gay clothing, and you say, whoa, wow, get him a nice seat. And then one of the inmates comes in, and it's, well, maybe there's some room back there for you in the back. We, we wouldn't want people to come here and think we're harboring fugitives or something, you know. Right? And God has to warn us of that because that's nature. But the apostate, that's the way he operates. He he gives, he's a respecter of persons. He has men's persons in admiration because of, ooh, that gives me an advantage. Why would that be? Because he's living for one thing, his own lust. That guy will give me the position I want. That lady will get help me get the job, the you know the the uh, the notoriety I want. Uh, that that youth group will get me this I want. This church they go to a church not because they think the church can help them serve the Lord, but because they think I can use that church. How many men I saw this in the southeast joined a church not because they were saved, not because they loved God, not because they wanted to serve God, but because it was the church that was growing in town and they could go when they ran for city council and say I'm a member of such and such Baptist church. That's what it's talking about. Having men's persons and admiration because of advantage. It'll do us well every now and then to say, who are my heroes? People that I think by knowing them can make me, you know, I admire them because I want the advantages they have? Or people that can equip me and help me serve God like I'm supposed to? Who our heroes are say a lot about us. Who we admire says a whole lot about us. And the apostate only admires people that they think are an advantage to them. They are completely consumed with self. And I believe this. I don't believe the great amount of... We see, I said, how many churches have become political. I believe what you're seeing then is the influence of an apostate. Can I give you an illustration? When Judas and the disciples were sitting and Mary comes in and anoints the feet of Jesus... The Lord Jesus is extremely pleased with what she did. He commends her. But who is it that pipes up and says, this should not have been done? I mean, this this could have been sold and given to the poor. Judas, and the Bible said, and so said they all. You see the influence Judas pulled among the disciples? These are men that prayed with Jesus, watched his miracles, and yet that apostate sitting among them, acting like he loved the poor, when in fact he loved what? Money. And it seems to me there were probably people sitting around that loved money as much as he did. And he went to the leadership of the Jews and rubbed shoulders with them and made a deal. You give me 30 pieces, I'll give you him. You see what an apostate does. Judas was walking according to his own lust. The Lord knowing it the whole time, he rejected Jesus Christ full well. And of course we know Judas' fate. My point is this tonight. You and I need to be aware and be able to identify. We can go wagging our finger. Not so we can become like them, but so that we can be free of their influences. We earnestly contend for the faith. Not settling for some counterfeit faith from the voice of an apostate. Here's what an apostate does. He cannot rob you of your salvation, but boy, he can rob you of your fruitfulness. On a day when the disciples should have been influenced by Mary, they were criticizing her. Why? Because they were listening to Judas more than Jesus. You with me? On a day when they should have been worshiping Christ like Mary was, they were criticizing Mary like Judas was. I've heard people with my own ears who I know are saved criticizing people who are more godly than themselves. You know why? They're listening to some Judas, and they're not listening to Jesus Christ. We need to beware to cut off the influences of Judas' in our life in the sense of being able to identify that's not someone I need to be Letting influence, that's not someone I'm to be listening to. I need to listen to the Lord and his word, be loyal to the Lord and his word, earnestly contending for the faith. All right, that ends that message. Woe unto them. Next week, Jude will get into a more specific instruction when he says, but beloved, but beloved, verse 17. He's going to remind them, I've identified the apostates. He's dealt with that, and he'll touch on it a little bit more before he's done. But now he's going to give them some instruction. Okay, now how do you respond with these kind of people coming in among you? And we'll get some instruction from the Word of God about how to respond to this, how we we should behave ourselves and conduct ourselves while we wait for the Lord to come. Mm